What if we both had percussion? No, that's not what this is. Put it down. Put it down. Ruth, I will walk out of here. I'm counting to three. I'm having a tantrum. <laughs> Are you having a diva moment? Maybe. Hey, did you ever notice that these like little finger symbols are like tiny little Mexican sombreros? Hi, Ruth. Hi, Josephine. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Pretty well. Yeah? Yeah. I'd say medium well. It was another beautiful winter sunny day today. Oh, was it sunny today? It was really sunny. I'm sorry. I say these things and you're in school inside. I was inside all day. It was, yeah. God, I just, the weather during COVID has actually been really good. Although we had like a mad storm. Oh, we did. We had a And my several... house leaked. Did it leak again? In so many places. Oh, no. And it's really, it's actually really stressful when you have water inside your house. Yeah. That shouldn't be there. Mm. Um, Fun. You got rid of it? Well, I, uh, maybe. <laughs> Hopefully. Those storms <laughs> only happen stopped. twice a year. <laughs> Although like where I live, floods really easily. Yeah. So I was sort of, I woke up and I was like, well, there's water in my house. So I hope at least I'm flooded in so I don't have to go to work. Yeah, and that's... I wasn't oh, quite no. flooded in. Rude. You had to go to work. Yeah. Boo. That's okay. Yeah. The children need me. They do. Mm. They do need you. So Ruth, mm. welcome to my favorite musical. The podcast. Thank you for welcoming me. Yes. And all of you listeners at home. All of you. My name is Josephine. That's Ruth. She's very rude because she doesn't introduce me ever. That's Josephine. <laughs> That's bitch. her name. Don't wear it out. <laughs> oh, so what's happening today? What's our plan? Uh, More of the same? talk about some things. Musicals? Yeah, probably. Sweet. What episode is this? It's episode 17. 17's <sighs> my... um lucky number is it actually yeah well it's always like whenever your birthday is right? yeah because mine's seven and i'm born on the seven yeah and seven's like a universal one yeah right? so i get shitty when everyone's like seven's my lucky number and i'm like back off yeah it's my actual lucky number <laughs> yeah all yeah. multiples of seven actually i like all sort Ooh. of multiples yeah yeah mm. but yeah 17 so i'm excited that it's episode 17 have you chosen a banger for episode 17 i sure have <laughs> Would you ever, if I'd asked you for any previous episodes that question, would you have ever said, mm, not really? No. Oh, you're so loyal. <laughs> ah, lovely. Do you have any apologies for us today? Uh, no, but I think you might have one because we talked about it during the week. Yes, I do. So, okay, everyone listen. Listen up. In the Gypsy and Susicle episode a while ago, I did a spotlight on Sakari Jones and her musical, particularly her musical, The River Is Me. Yeah. And so The River Is Me is actually inspired by the story of Emmett Till. We erroneously said that Emmett, the lynching of Emmett Till was like a hundred years ago and it was not. No. And it was not by a long, long yeah. way. So Emmett Till was actually lynched in 1955 at the age of 14. Um, and he then sort of became a really important figure in the subsequent civil rights movement. Yeah. But I think it was that you sent me you sent me this like um I, like maybe a post on Twitter saying like can you believe Emmett Till is like the same age? Yeah, as it would have been. I think it was like it would have been his seventy ninth birthday. Yeah. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, hold on. Yeah. I know I said something very different. Because John Lewis, who died, yes. um, the politician in America, was a year older. Van Emmett Till. Yeah, right. Like, it's insane. It's insane. So, uh, yeah. And 
yeah, maybe in my head I just thought maybe we weren't lynching people literally, in the 50s. Literally that is what I thought. I suppose that's just too much to hope for. Yeah. So, yeah, no, we, we uh, Emmett Till was lynched in 1955. Yeah. So I apologise for getting that wrong. I'm, I'm going to work on making sure I don't just speak that I research first. Yeah, but I have to say like. If anything, the mistake just highlighted the exact how problem. terrible. Yeah. 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 So do you have a spotlight? Today? Yeah. And in fact, my spotlight kind of leads on from what we were just talking about. Okay, perfect. Um, I chose, uh, it's a, I'm talking about a musical again. Yes. Um, it's the Scottsboro Boys. Oh, nice. Um, and this musical is from the same season as the main musical that I'm going to talk about in the um, podcast, which is partly why I wanted to talk about it today. Cool. Um. Now, I have to preface it by saying that this musical is written by white people. Right. Like, it's not – when I'm talking about artists of colour, I'm more talking about the subject matter and the performers that were in the show not the than creatives. the composers. Yeah. So it was 10 years ago that it was on Broadway, and um, but it's written by Candor and Ebb. It was one of their last um, musicals um, God, together. Crazy to think that they were composing 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, I think that they had written it, like, a bit before then and yeah. it was – yeah. Um, so – but what you should know, and part of the reason I wanted to talk about it is that, like, it's really hard to find this show now. Like, mm. it, there are two cast recordings that exist. There's the off-Broadway cast recording from before it moved to Broadway and there's a London cast recording. And neither of them are on Spotify. Neither of them are on fucking YouTube. And, like, Jesus. YouTube has everything. You know, um, the off-Broadway cast recording is on Apple Music, but the London cast recording isn't. Can you like, buy them as CDs? You can buy them as CDs, yeah. But, like, God. honestly, like... Who does it's that? It's not good enough to only have that available now. Yeah, I, agree. I think like that is not how people consume music these days. Well, this and this is not some obscure thing from the thirties. No. Like, um, so this musical is about a true story, um, and it's the case of the Scottsboro Boys, and it's sort of. Um, similar to Emmett Till in that it's another just case of like blatant racism in America yeah. that was White a famous yeah. yeah famous case. So the Scottsboro Boys were a group of nine African American teenagers aged between 13 to 19 mm. and it, it takes place in 1931 and they were basically falsely accused of raping two white women. Yeah. Um they were all on a train together um and like they had had an altercation with some some white boys on the train and and it sort of led to these women accusing them as rape falsely. And although it sort of now is completely clear that the story was totally fabricated, yeah. um, of course they just kept being found guilty by white juries, mm. um, even though there was actual medical evidence to suggest that it like wasn't the case. Mm. And um, it kept sort of getting appealed and appealed. It went to the Supreme Court like three times. Like there's all this stuff that happened and eventually um, all but two of them served jail time of various lengths even though, My God. you know, um, they were very clearly um, innocent. So it's um, it's one of those musicals that everyone who has seen it talks about just how important it was and how ahead of its time it was and just what important things it was saying that, just like, I don't know, maybe America wasn't prepared to hear at the time because it wasn't very successful when it was on Broadway. Like it only ran for a couple of months. Yeah, I wonder what would happen now. Yeah. Um, so it was on Broadway in 2010 and it was on in the West End in 2014. In um, On Broadway it set the unlucky record of the most Tony, Tony nominations with no wins, with 12. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that was the record at the time. So I got 12 Tony nominations, didn't win anything. Holy shit. That record was equaled by Mean Girls in 2018. Yeah. Also um, 12 nominations with no wins. Yeah. But like, yeah, so like clearly it was important enough that it like 
so was you know considered so important for all those Tony nominations. But yeah, so I will link to their performance at the Tony Awards. Um, but yeah, it's just like a show. Like listen to it if you can. Watch videos. Um, read about the case. Uh, and yeah, it was performed by the every person in the cast, but one was African American. Wow. Yeah. Um, and um, Susan Stroman was the director choreographer. Oh, we so she was producers like she's done a lot of stuff yeah, yeah, yeah. over the years wow yeah so that's I wish, we could, I wish we could um link to more about right? it you know like i wish we could link the i know God. i know but yeah i would i would love to have seen it i would love to see a production of it one day yeah but okay. like it's also like it's candor and ebb it's not like it's yes, some not like super some random, unknown yeah, yeah. Fuck. So bizarre. Anyway, sad. okay. Um, my spotlight today. I'm actually spotlighting a coalition. So I want to talk about the Asian American Performers Action Coalition. Yep. So basically, this um, this really excellent organization was formed in 2011 as a result of a Facebook post by Asian American actor Poon Bandu. Okay. I really apologize if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. I looked up multiple pronunciations, but um, that that was the best I could find. So he um, he's a Broadway actor. He's done a bit of TV as well. Who was who was sort of at the end of his tether with just the lack of opportunity for um, people of color, but particularly Asian Americans on on the stage on yeah. the Broadway stage. So. He basically made this big Facebook post about it and then just got like hundreds and hundreds of comments and messages. Yeah. Um, so he decided to do something about it. So he found really interestingly, I thought, that the theatre industry doesn't actually really collect or keep consistent data on the race or ethnicity of Broadway actors. Mm. And the excuse that um, the majority of these organisations come up with is that usually information about race or ethnicity is self-determined and so not easy to collect or collect it at all. But what is really fucking interesting is that the Broadway League collects data about the race of people who see shows yeah like they have no trouble collecting data about the ethnicity of its audiences so just shit like I don't I don't put any stock in that excuse but anyway so the AAPAC decided to conduct a really like comprehensive study into this issue yeah it took them years and years actually to gather all this data but they found that since 2008 somewhere around 80 percent of roles are filled by white people Uh, I mean that's actually lower than I thought it was going to be that number has been consistent since 2008 so they haven't collected data earlier than that yeah because I'm sure it would only be a higher number but that number isn't doesn't really fluctuate and also it would have it would be skewed by the fact that something like the Lion King has a predominantly yes well um, interestingly the Lion King or um the King and I yeah. existing on uh, I like if you look at the stats if you break it down by show it's like on or yeah yeah so even more damning I think in the 2014-2015 Broadway season only 5.9% of shows were cast in a way that was non-traditional yeah 5.9% I know, of shows that's pathetic like, we don't need traditional casting yeah. there's no need no. for that like if Hamilton's taught us anything yeah. it's taught us that surely yeah so why on earth is it only 2015 yeah I, anyway well I um, we're gonna be talking about this a lot today anyway go on man I could I could really talk on and on and on about this but I highly recommend you have a look at their um their website they do some really great advocacy work so yeah I'll link to it yeah because awesome. yeah it was really interesting yeah I heard some stats the other day that something like Asian American actors only, it's something like 1.6% of all Broadway yeah. performers or something. What's really upsetting too is if you get down into Native American performers. Oh, yes. Which is like 0.2. It's tiny. Yeah. 
It's nothing. And I think that that's a really similar um, issue that we have with Indigenous performance in Australia 100%. where it's like a cultural thing where it's like they're not encouraged. Yeah. And even worse over there where musical theatre really is part of the cultural lexicon uh-huh. in a way that it isn't here. No, that's It's right. like, um, yeah, like Everyone's do something this. about it. Yeah, exactly. Ridiculous. Bullshit. Yeah. Okay, do we have a theatre explained today? We do. What's the topic, Ruth? We're going to be talking about sits probes. Sits probe. Yeah. Nice. A German word. Yes, um, meaning seated rehearsal. Seated rehearsal, correct. Yeah. Yeah. So um, my understanding is it's essentially the first rehearsal where the orchestra and cast sing together. That's it. It's that simple. It's pretty much that, right? Yeah. So previously, like before the sits probe occurs, the orchestra and the cast rehearse separately. Yeah. So this is the first time they ever sort of come together. Yeah. What um, what I think a lot of people who are listening, maybe if you're used to amateur sits probes, Usually the sits probe actually includes the dialogue. It's not just the songs. Or like if you were doing it in a professional show, it would include yeah. the dialogue. So if you're in yeah. A, yeah, that's right. So it would, it would be the entirety of the show. So yeah. the orchestra actually have a chance to see how the show would run. Well, and because I assume that they would also play like the interstitial music and oh, yes. stuff, so which, any, you, like, which you often don't do in an amateur. That's right. Yeah. So, so usually a sits probe in a professional setting takes a number of days yeah. to get through. And also, But you're still not like doing the blocking. No, you're no, just, you don't yeah. move. Although there is, so after the sits probe, some productions have what's called a Vondel probe. Yeah, so I had, so I, I didn't discover that term in researching for this, but the first time I heard it was watching that show Encore on Disney Plus where they do a Vondel probe for every show. And I was like, I'm sorry, what is this term I've never heard before? Yeah, so that literally means a moved rehearsal. Yeah. So it's like like the next step up. But it is just not something that gets done in amateur theatre really. Yeah. Because it's kind of like once you're in the theatre, you're doing it. Like we don't have time for this. Yeah. Yeah. So that sits probe, everyone. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Um, do you have any recommendations for this week? Oh, I sort of do. It's not a recommendation more so much as like a bit of gossip. I heard a rumour that maybe Disney's Aladdin, like the, the musical, maybe the next thing to like a I don't even filmed. think it's a rumour. I think they've confirmed it. Have they? Yeah, but it's the, it's the West End cast, not so the Broadway cast. What I'm saying is that um, maybe if Ruth is correct, Disney's Aladdin um, – Filmed professional musical may, may be coming to Disney Plus for yeah. our viewing pleasure. But yeah. it made me realise because as I was reading this and I know you will have seen all those memes on Instagram and I think it's um, I think it's important that we talk about why it's difficult to just stream yeah. professionally filmed musicals willy-nilly. Yeah. Like I know that's what we all want. I've, I really do want it desperately but it's just a little more difficult than that. Yeah. It's just so complex. And, and – like, honestly, this is what we'll see more of, West End cast rather than Broadway cast. Just in terms of, yeah, remuneration yeah. And, and paying royalties. Because just understand that, like, when you when you watch something on Netflix or Spotify, whatever, Spotify is a bad example, but, like, the actors have been remunerated to reflect the fact that that will be a TV show or a, or a movie that is seen in perpetuity. Yeah. But when you perform on stage, you don't necessarily have a contract that reflects that you no. are going to be seen in that production in perpetuity. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of these actors are not compensated the way or, or that's what's what's problematic is that it's difficult to then say what's the compensation yeah, if so we put you on Disney+. Plus. The way I understand it is that the, the deal that currently exists, exists with equity in America yeah. is 
results in the actors getting paid shitloads, like yeah. a lot yeah. if it gets Residuals, filmed. yeah. Yeah. But, well, not even just – like, no, like a, an upfront payment that's quite big. Yes. That's in fact more than they get paid, say, when they record the cast recording or anything yes. like that. Um, well, this is so much wide like, – it's very widely watched. It, it makes is, sense. It is. It is. I think actually, though, the issue is that, like, right now – finding the room in a show budget to include that yes, is agree. the issue. So, like, we're talking about, like, it would cost a show, like, over a million dollars to do it. Yeah. Now, for a show like Hamilton. That's fine. Fine. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> pocket change for them. And probably for Disney as well. Exactly. You know, they've got a bit of um, money. We're talking about corporations in those cases, really, yes. you know. Um, but the problem is for, like, your average run-of-the-mill show, that's a lot for them yeah. to add to their budget, yeah. right? Um what I think they will probably aim for in the future is that the payment up front is not as much mm. but that there is some sort of residuals because yes. I don't think, for example, I don't necessarily think that those Hamilton people have gotten anything extra from that being on Disney+. Plus. No. Maybe. It might be like a per stream thing or something but yeah. my instinct is that it's like the cast recording and they get paid a they fee get, get paid and that's it. it. Yeah. yeah. So I, what I'm hoping is that what we will learn from this is that in the future – Shows will like consider this before, you know, like as part yeah. of the process. And I do of think that that will show. happen. Yeah. yeah, I think it will too. But it's it's just a lot more difficult. Like I know a lot of you just bandy around. Let's just put them on Netflix. Yeah, it's just it's just not. That yeah, simple. exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um. Tell us your recommendation. Okay. Well, one thing um I've been I've been listening to a lot this week. Oh. Um. Is a show called Sing Street. So it was yes. due to open on Broadway. Like. When COVID hit, yes. um, I saw it off Broadway last year at New York Theatre Workshop, mm. and it's also a really cute film. If you haven't seen the film, it's great. Yeah, um, and yeah, the cast album is out. Um, it's on Spotify of the Broadway cast, mm. and it's just like really easy to listen to. It is. The storyline is basically about this teenage boy who like starts a new wave rock band to like impress a girl, mm. and so it's all that kind of like new wave music. Yeah, it's really easy to listen to. The movie's great as well, um, but yeah. That's, I've been listening to that a lot this week. Um, nice. My other recommendation is just I rewatched Fleabag in the last <laughs> week, and it is I think my favorite TV show of all time. Better than The West Wing. <laughs> that's your favorite TV show oh, of all time. I, I forget that that's not everyone's. <laughs> <laughs> like I love it so much, and it is theater related because it started as a one woman show. Yeah, it's so fucking good. It is. Very I'm, ob- I'm obsessed. Good. I'm obsessed. That's okay. You're That's allowed. all I can say. You're allowed. Yeah. So watch Fleabag if you haven't. That's on Amazon Prime. It's on Amazon Prime. I think the second season's on SBS if you're in Australia. Yay, SBS. But not the first season. <laughs> <laughs> it might I'm be ABC. Do I don't know. It feels more SBS than ABC. Hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. I'm first. Oh, are you? Yeah. I just said that not into my microphone. <laughs> oh, are you? Oh, are you? <laughs> just do a re-deliver of the line. Oh, are you? Do it again. Do it just one more time. Oh, are you? No, you say your line and I'll say mine. Oh, I I know, I get it. I was just making. Um I'm first this week. <laughs> She's just giving me death stares. I'm Go sorry, fuck everyone. Yourself. Um this week I'm doing the Book of Mormon. <gasps> Whoa, mm. interesting. So, can I just do a little quick? Um, <laughs> I don't like the you book. You haven't of seen it. Yeah, I don't care. Um, so, I added this show to my list like months ago, right? Yeah. Of shows I wanted to do because I've, I've loved this score for a long time. Um, I love the way that it sort of imitates classic Broadway music and, you know, lampoons different issues and the way that it deals with religion, I really like. Um, I've personally seen the show 
probably six times professionally over the years in different in in different places. Jeez, that's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. It's over like nine years though. Um, but having said that, like in the last couple of months, um, you know, in examining, you know, we've really been looking hard at like the systemic racism of the musical theatre community and musical theatre as an art form. Mm. Like I've definitely seen the show with new eyes mm. um, and I've had my eyes open to a lot of things that are problematic that the show, you know, issues that the show has, some of which I considered previously, like definitely, and yes. some of which I had not. Wow. Um, I'm glad you're still doing it so you can tell us about those things. Yeah. yeah but also important. because I think some of them are really fixable. Yeah. Like, and some of them aren't, and I think some of them won't be fixed. Like, I have heard people say, oh, maybe Book of Mormon won't even reopen after COVID. Like, I've had, I've had, I've heard people say that. Wow. And I don't think that that's true, but certainly the industry is finally talking about issues with this show that they've ne- they've, they've previously completely turned a blind eye to, Jeez. right? Well, that, I mean, that's positive that we're yeah. looking at it. Yeah. I mean, like th- those are people that are not involved in the show that have made those comments to me mm. and I'm they don't have privileged information or anything. But no, just no. there seems to be this general feeling in the community like something has to be done, yeah. right? Like it's, it's yeah. not okay now. We know enough now yeah. to say no. When we know yeah. better, we do better, right? Um, Hopefully. So I just wanted to set that discussion aside until we've just sort of talked about the, the particulars of the show. Okay, ready. So music, lyrics and book by Trey Parker, Matt Stone and Robert Lopez. So Trey and Matt obviously known very popularly as the South creators Park. and stars of South Park. Yeah. Um, Robert Lopez, lots of you would know as the co-writer of Avenue Q and mm-hmm. Frozen. He wrote Frozen with his wife. Um, <laughs> so imagine if that's your resume, like Avenue Q and Frozen. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> it's weird, pretty isn't weird. it? Well, yeah. and Book of Mormon. And Book like, of Mormon, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the story is essentially that Elder Price and Elder Cunningham are Mormon missionaries sent on their mission to Uganda to convert local villages um, to Mormonism. To yes. The, um, the village is war-torn and AIDS-ridden and Elder Price, who is a shiny golden child um, who is expecting to excel in everything he does, has a crisis of faith after seeing how hard his mission will be. Elder Cunningham, his hapless sidekick who has a problem with making up stories constantly, is left alone and ends up converting a whole bunch of the villagers but with his own made-up tale of the Book of Mormon, featuring, for example, Star Wars and Fuck Frogs, right? That's essentially the show. Yep, got it. Um, So the show was planning to do an off-Broadway run at New York Theatre Workshop but instead opted to open cold on Broadway. Um, It had had many years of workshops but it didn't do any production before it opened on Broadway. Yeah. No production that anyone could pay to come and say, right? It's quite amazing. Yeah, that which is like pretty unheard of. Yeah. So it started previews at the Eugene O'Neill Theatre on February 24th, 2011 and has been running ever since then. So obviously <sighs> it's not running at the moment because of COVID, but it has been running since 2011. I think it's the 14th longest running Broadway show. Jeez. Something like that. Yeah. Um, it was – so it was the same season as the Scottsboro Boys yep. um, that I mentioned before. So it was nominated for 14 Tony Awards at the 2011 Tonys mm. and it won nine of those. Mm. Um, they were Best Musical, Best Book, Best Score, Best Direction, Best Featured Actress for Nikki M. James who plays Nabalungi, yeah. um, Best Orchestrations, Best Scenic Design, Best Lighting Design and Best Sound Design. So yeah, right. a bit of really a clean sweep. The, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it also started performances in London on February 25th, 2013 at the Prince of Wales Theatre and likewise, if it wasn't for COVID, is still running there. Jeez. Yeah. So like yeah. very successful. Hugely successful. Yeah. 
Um, so originally Jeff Marks, who was the co-writer of um, the co-composer of Avenue Q with Bobby Lopez, he was involved originally. Like, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Actually. So like basically Trey and Matt went and saw a performance of Avenue Q. They were in New York. Yeah. I think they, Scott Rudin, you know, the Broadway yes. producer and yes. film producer, I think produced Team America that, yeah, that Trey and That's Matt wrote. Trey and Matt. Yeah. yeah. And so he was like, hey, like there's this show on with puppets like, you know. And it's raunchy and you will love it. Yeah. And so um, they went and saw it. Bobby and Jeff happened to be there that night um, and they all like went out and caught. You know, well, because I think got also, dinner or whatever afterwards. I think Bobby Lopez was a fan of South Park. Oh, like for I th- sure. Like well, I think I, there was a lot of like a mutual. South Park was inc- incredibly influential in Avenue Q. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. so um, yeah, basically, like they all went and, and they all kind of just ended up talking about how they're obsessed with Mormons. Yeah. So like Trey and Matt are from Colorado, yeah, so that's like right. that they know a lot about it. You know, growing up, um, I think it's Matt's first serious girlfriend was a Mormon. Like, there's all mm. this stuff. So. Um, yeah, so he was involved, like, and for quite a few years, it was the four of them writing it. Um, and there was a creative differences and he was kicked, Jeff Marks was kicked out basically a few years in. Um, however, like the upside for him is that he's still included in the profit participation for the show. Yeah. So he is probably like earning a shitload from it basically. Also for like not doing the full amount of work. Yeah. Like I think he, so I think it took them something like seven years to write and he was involved for like the first three or something like that. That is my dream job. Right. Just getting kicked out halfway through. It's like that dude who came up with the concept of rent. So Remember how we talked about that? Yeah. Yeah. And like, yeah, get some percentage. Yeah, man. Um, So I thought I would talk about a few, like obviously one of the great things that the show does is there's lots of musical theater references in the music of the, of the show. Um, I just thought I'd talk about a few of the really blatant ones that are great, but you and me and mostly me is yes. like a wicked, a total wicked ripoff. There's like wizard and I and defying gravity in there. Yeah. Um, I believe is, I have confidence from sound of music, like to the point where they do lines the same and yep. everything. <laughs> um, Salt Lake city. We mentioned in the uh, li- little shop of horrors somewhere episode green, yeah. because it's somewhere that's green and part, and of, your part world. of your world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and obviously Hasadiga Ibawai is like a Hakuna Matata yes. ripoff, like very clearly. Um, I, as some people are like, oh, it, they just have written it, like they've just copied it. It's like, no, it's clearly an homage. Like, yeah, it's all like. It's so blatantly yeah. an homage. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a great clip somewhere online. I think it was on Twitter. So it was like, I couldn't find it, but I remember watching it before where Andrew Rannells, who was the original Elder Price, he was talking about how. Because I think he was only in the final workshop as Elder Price. Like Josh Gad, who plays Elder Cunningham, he was involved for quite some time. Yeah. But um, but yeah, uh, Andrew Reynolds was only in that final workshop, and it's he, he just talking about how he kept making them take the keys up oh for Elder gosh. Price, like up and because it's really high it's roll. So high. Yeah, and basically it was just like he just didn't want them to give the role to anyone else, so he was just <laughs> like, if I keep taking it up, you know, I'll be the only person who can play it. Um, I love that level of ego. Right? I'm here for that. <laughs> That's a me move. Other like random original cast member facts is that Brian Tyree Henry, who played the general in the original Broadway cast, I just I didn't quite realize this, but of course it is. But I just finished watching Atlanta, yes. the TV show that Donald Glover created and stars in, and he plays Paperboy, who's the rapper that's yes. like it's all about. Um, and of I course, was, like, but I was just like, oh my god, that is him! Like yeah. it just never occurred to me that he had this whole Broadway career before <laughs> before he was on TV. Um, so the general in real life, so in the show, he's called General Butt Fucking Naked, right? Mm. Like that's the character name. He's based on a real 
general. Yes. He's based on a real Liberian warlord who wasn't General Butt-fucking-naked, but he was known as General Butt-naked. That was yes. his thing. And he had this thing where he, like, killed people naked. Like, that was, like, his thing. And, like, honestly, he's a very evil person. Oh, yeah. Uh, he claims to have killed over 20,000 people. Apparently, that is kind of bullshit. But, it's like, a flex it's too. still right. He um he's only like forty eight in real life. This general, like now, wow, in twenty twenty. So he was like, literally like a teenager and stuff when this was happening. Because in nineteen ninety six, I think he um converted to Christianity um and is Fuck. now an evangelical preacher, <laughs> right? Like someone who's killed that many people. I know it's crazy. Ugh. Um, so originally in early workshops, that character was actually called General Coney. Oh, and do you remember Coney twenty twelve? Oh, right. So, like, you know, anyone our age, anyone, you know, in their 30 and under basically will remember that in 2012 there was this huge viral social media campaign to make the world know who this General Coney was. And after that happened, they were like, oh, this is going to muddy the waters if we call this character. But that is who it was named for to begin with. That makes sense. Yeah, Yeah, right? I mean, it's the same intention, right? Exactly. Yeah. the show was one of the first on Broadway to utilise dynamic pricing in their tickets. Oh. Yeah, so you know in the same way that like when you book an airline or a hotel, the price fluctuates depending on demand? Like that's yes. really common. So that wasn't a big thing with Broadway no, tickets. No, like the price is the price. Exactly. Like they would you would set like seat A12 costs this no yes. matter, you know, what. Like it might be more expensive <laughs> on a <laughs> <laughs> you just knocking microphones. Yeah, look, um, whatever. It might be more expensive like on a Saturday night than on a Tuesday night, but that's it. You know, like it wasn't it's other than like that. not like winter pricing or summer pricing. No, or exactly. So um, they just, because it was such a hot ticket to the show, you know, they, they were really able to like jack up the price of the premium tickets. Yeah. Um, and it meant that um, in their first year, they were consistently in the top five highest grossing Broadway shows, despite having like the theater only seats 1,066, oh, whereas so like Wicked's like small. double that, yeah. right? Like that's very small for a Broadway musical. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it helped the production recoup in just nine months. Shit, yeah. nine months. Uh-huh. Because that was a big budget to uh, begin it with. Was, well, interestingly, I read an article that was saying that it was originally capitalised at $11 million, which was fairly standard fairly for a Broadway standard. musical then. Um, and they actually came in under budget at about $9 million, which oh, meant wow. that they like handed money back to investors, which is actually causes a bit of a stir because it's like that no. means that those investors get a smaller pool, you know, right. a smaller they don't piece get of profits the, uh, later on. Well, that's smart. Yeah. If you've got that extra, you wouldn't keep exactly. it. Well, normal, see, like normally a, a show would because then it's like money that they've got later on when the show's not doing well, but yeah. I think they knew they had a hit on their hands. So Jeez. Um, so the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is the Mormon church, yes. right, it regularly advertises in the playbills of the of the show. <laughs> I love that. Um, and often the ads read, you've seen the play, now read the book. That's what the, <laughs> that's what the ads say. Um, I wonder if anyone is like, yeah, I think, <laughs> I I think, think I maybe will. Mormonism's interesting yeah. to me now, yeah. now that I've seen this musical. Um so I'm not really the sort of person that like goes to the stage door and like, you know, talks to performers or anything, especially now that I go for work. But yes. when I first saw the show in 2011, I was on holidays in New York. I wasn't there for work. And um, that particular trip, we did do a bit of stage dooring. Yeah. Um, our friend Zach and I. And uh, 
yeah, it was, I saw the show on Broadway. It was 2011, like September, 2011. So it was quite early really in the thing of it. So yeah, we saw the original, we saw the original Broadway cast. Oh, shit, that's cool. And so what it means is that I have a window card, like a big, you know, Broadway poster signed mm. by the entire original Broadway cast oh of Book of Mormon, God. like including Andrew Reynolds and Josh Gad and like, that's very yeah. Cool. So I have that, um, in my hot little possession. Um, it's also one of the shows that, you know, I have my like own personal like triad of professional shows um, that I love to complete where I've seen this show on Broadway on the West End and in Australia professionally. Yes, so yes. this is one of those shows as well. <laughs> um, okay. So let's talk about the issues. Okay. Right. Ready. So here's my thing. Yeah. I think that the important thing with this show is not so much that it's racist because really what I think they did was they took such great steps to be careful about the religion in the show. And actually it's very, it's actually lovely in terms of the religious aspects of it. It's very respectful and uh, the way that it talks about faith not really being about you believing in in the words that are being spoken but about like doing good with your life and yes. stuff like this. They've been so like it's such a love letter to religion in that sense, even mm. though they're atheists. Yes. Like they literally have like referred to it as like an atheist love letter to religion. Yeah. But in doing that, they've like ignored every issue to do with Africa (laughs) that has ever like, you know, existed. So instead what we've got is a case of like the African, the portrayal of Africa, which is like they've called it Uganda, but all it really is is this like generalised broad strokes version of Africa. Yeah, it's a caricature of what, what, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Is, um, it's like all, none of that care went to that Mm. and you know, so the common term you see about the South Park guys is they're like um, uh, equal opportunity offenders. Like yes. they're happy to offend everyone, right? Yes. And that's – I think that there's a place for that. But my thing with satire is that it works as long as you're not punching down. Yeah. And I do think that there's elements of the show that are punching down towards the treatment of the African Definitely. people and the characters. I just think like they could have been cleverer in making a point that didn't tread on something else. Yeah. And they trod very heavily on Africa and African people. Yeah. And I, I like I don't, like some of the criticisms are things like, or they make the African characters seem dumb, right? And I don't necessarily think that's the case. Like, and I had quite a lot. Like, like so, our friend Joe, mm-hmm. um, it was in the it was in the recent Australian tour of Book of Mormon, playing one of the Africans. Yes, and we were talking about it the other night, and. Um, I said, you know, do you see them as like a lot of people say that the African characters, they make them look dumb, like Nubalungi, like with sending a text message on a typewriter, for example. Yes. And he's like, well, no, it's it's about her being like naive with technology. Yes. It's not about her being dumb. I agree with that. I, I never thought that – I don't think that's the problem. In fact, I think that distracts from the problem. Yes. The problem is a lot – it's a lot deeper than that. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's the, the biggest problem I think is with simplification and, you know, and in the end, the result of my conversation with him and in doing a lot of research myself that I got to is that the bigger issue is actually not the show's content, mm. but it's, it's the way that we interact with the show yes. and it's the way that the show is performed for us. Yes. So intersectionality is really the issue. Mm-hmm. So like, why are there no black people playing the Mormons yes. in the show? You There's know, a very clear separation between 
the white people and the black people. So there's this real like white saviour complex that goes on in the show. And they're obviously criticising the white saviour complex but they can't do it in a way that doesn't demonise the other side. Exactly. That's what they do. And, for example, because the song I Am Africa is that. It is a critique of that like white saviour thing. But the problem is that, um, A, like you're casting all these like beautiful white men, yep. like shiny, shiny, yep. like purebred, cornbread white men yep. to play these roles when in fact like, you know, Joe said it to me, he's like, I've met black Mormons. Oh, they exist. Like they exist all over the place. Like the, the Mormon church is not like primarily white, you it, know what I mean? Like yeah, it's, it's still it's, like a quite a vibrant multicultural church. And so like. Yeah, I just think that they are reinforcing some of that literally just with the casting of the show. Yeah. And I think that a lot would be solved in having more multicultural casting of yeah. the Mormons in the show. Yeah, I, I, it, it would almost bring a whole other level to the issue about yeah. it being like about almost like a, a Western world trying to invade. It's more like a colonisation like, comment. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So that's a big thing I think. Um, mm. I, I, like – I would love to see an Elder Price or an Elder Cunningham of colour, for example. I just think that and that would be... And there's absolutely no reason why it couldn't no. happen. No. And there's so, nothing... for example, colourblind... When we talk about colourblind casting, mm. the whole point is that if there is something inherent in the character that says that they have to be a, a, a specific race, then you don't do colourblind casting, right? Yes. So, for example, like in King and I, the King of Siam, yes. right, um, there is something Im- implicit in that character that yeah. is the reason that you wouldn't cast a white person in that role. Despite the fact that they do cast white people in that role. But Correct. anyway, yes. But yes, like that's In a, in a great point, world, yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, if it was someone who is described, you know, in the show as having X, Y and Z, then you cast that that way right but if Um, it's like a girl with brown hair yeah i'm sorry that's that's not the point is then that it should be cast as to whoever is the most talented person for the role and if anything yeah cast it you know diversely so that we get a broader range of of viewpoints and everything so yeah i just think it's it's crazy in that sense that Mm. the cast isn't more multicultural Mm. and i actually think that they would they would help their case a lot if they made that one simple change. Yeah. Um, the other thing and the other thing that I think really amplifies this issue and I think that this is a similar issue that happens with Hamilton and a reason possibly why some of the criticisms of Hamilton that have popped up that they have is that it is like hugely majority white audiences that are consuming this show. Yes. And laughing at these jokes that may be seen as at the expense of the African people, right? And I think that that's – and that's honestly a problem that is not going to be solved by the show. No. Because it's not like – But also like you're saying – so talking about ticket pricing and things on Broadway – Broadway is an incredibly um, privileged, privileged, segregated – like. I can't go to Broadway. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the number of people who can go and see a show on Broadway who are primarily white and wealthy. Yeah. And, like several hundred dollars for a ticket. Yeah. Like it's that, crazy. Yeah. And I don't think like that's an issue not just with Book of Mormon. You no, know, that is an right. issue that's with a, every show on Broadway. Yeah. Like I that is, that's an issue with theatre. Correct. I, I agree. I agree. And so – you know, I don't have an answer for that really. Mm. I, I I know that, for example, Hamilton has really tried to combat that. Mm. Um, interestingly, we may have even talked about it in an early episode, but To Kill a Mockingbird, the play, mm. did a did a performance at Madison Square Garden awesome. filled with students. Like 
The Aaron Sorkin ones? Yeah, thousands yeah. and thousands of students in an, in an arena got to watch this play. Amazing. So that all these kids could see that play and, yeah. you know, that important text and everything. Yeah. Um, That's what we need. Yeah. So, look, I mean, I don't know if you have anything else to say about the the race issues and everything with the show, but to me it's like – It makes I don't me think, very uncomfortable. Yeah. I, I don't think the show is not salvageable. Like I don't think it's a case of just – close the show um, because it's not – it's almost like not the biggest issue, you know, facing the show. Like it, like it's not really what the show is about and in that sense it's fixable. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, it's such it's a small pivotal, part. It's not pivotal to the story. Exactly. I feel I feel very um, torn about it because I, I feel uncomfortable with it and I always have and um, I also feel like I'm not qualified – yeah, to talk to about make a comment, whether yeah. it's okay or whether it's not okay or yeah. whether it whether there is anything that you can fix in it. I just don't feel like I'm qualified. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, the argument that a lot of people make with with shows is that like it's providing work, you know, for the for those African American performers. Who, well, it's not good enough, but that's where I go, well, let's provide even more work yeah. then. Like That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and like what I was talking about with the um the AAPAC like it shouldn't just be that if um, if Miss Saigon or The King and I is on Broadway, then you're going to get some work this year I know. if you're an Asian American. It's like, ridiculous. It shouldn't be that if you're a person of colour, then Book of Mormon, there's some great African characters you can play. Yeah. Like It just shouldn't be like that. And representation is so important. Like people being able to see themselves on stage. Absolutely. You know, it's funny, you know, like I've gotten in, into arguments in the past few years about, say, like, in particular, like in Frozen, there is um, the girl who was the I think the Anna understudy was was a was a black woman, right? right. Yeah. So that means that like we had a friend that went and saw it, and the young Anna, when she's a little girl, was played by a little white girl, mm-hmm. and the elder Anna was played by a, a black woman. Yes. And to them, they're like, "Well, that's confusing. Like, audiences are confused." And I'm like, "Okay, she literally well, wears the same dress." Yeah, like, and it's also like, "Okay, but those two girls also aren't related. Like, the two white women are not related. Yeah. Like, like then if the kids are confused, then we educate you them about what them. performers are. Yeah, you need and to talk to I them just, about this. I just don't agree. <laughs> no, like I just think it's so that's, much more important. It's to, just not, it's not enough of an argument to say the little girl was confused. Yeah, well, then that's a perfect opportunity for to education. Say, hey, look. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry I've let this lapse in your education for yeah. this long as your parent. Yeah, sorry, but also, that, that's fucked. Yeah, but also like, like this is the thing. I think that, and I think this happens on Broadway a lot. Is that we think our audiences are dumber than they are. Yeah, I think that we we have to. It's like they're like, well, we have to show that the Mormons are the white ones and the, you know, the Africans are the black ones. And it's like, yeah. like, let's you know, most just. Most people know what colonization yeah, is. Yeah. And also, and... like, that's not the way the world looks. No. Like, let's just yeah. get over that. Anyway, I, it's, yeah, I really hope that that does change in the future because yeah. I do think that the show is, like, very clever. I and... wonder what the impetus to change will be, though. Like,. What is that? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Well, something like the We See You White American Theatre, like what they're doing with um, their like calling people out directly and like the Ensemblist, um, which is a podcast and like a um, they've got a great Instagram and everything. Yeah. They have like literally released the data on the current Broadway shows and what their racial makeup is and stuff like that. And, and like for, so for example, like wicked is one that I think is atrocious where it's something like 90 something percent white Mm. in a, in a made up land. Yeah. In a land that it, 
doesn't exist. And there's one person n- there's who's green. never been there's never been a um a black or Asian um Elphaba or Glinda like play play the role. So like only standbys or understudies. Fuck that. Not in like the fi- what seventeen years it's been running. Yeah. There's never been one. That's such. Bullshit. And, and there's been like three, you know, Latinx females have played Elphaba, and like mm. that's it. Those are the only people of color that have played those roles. Mm. Like it's ridiculous. Um, so yeah, again, we're talking about a made up land. Like it's yeah. just atrocious. It's atrocious. Anyway, Fuck. getting sidetracked, but it's all the same issue at hand really. Um, so yeah, I really hope that those changes get made and, and like something like, you know, we see you white American theater calling it out. I, I think that there will be yeah. people speaking out, yeah. you know, and, um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I really want it to get saved because I do think that there are some genius things happening in this show. So the Gateway songs I'm about to talk about are, are genius musical theatre songs, yeah. you know? Like Ready. they are great. So um, the opening number, Hello, is just a great like introduction Love to the that show. Love yep. um, Iboi that I mentioned earlier, which is like the Hakuna Matata ripoff, it is like their made-up translation to mean fuck you, God. Mm-hmm. And again, like the way that it lampoons – religion in certain ways is so smart yeah. and so clever and They're I just wish boys. that the same care was taken you know with the rest of the show yeah um and all American Prophet I've I've listed as the other gateway song just because oh, it yeah, gives you call. it's like a it, it's like their kind of version of like telling the history of Mormonism yeah nice. which is like a religion that I didn't know a lot about before it's I had seen the show fascinating. it is so fascinating I think Bobby <laughs> Lopez or I can't remember one of them described it in the interview as like bible fan fiction oh totally like it's just like yeah. someone was just like I'm gonna put America in the story yeah, like yeah. you know so true um so in terms of listening to it like there's only the original Broadway cast and mm-hmm. that's it um that's on Spotify but I think it's because these shows have continued to be run yeah like, that's right it's not like we're up to revivals yet exactly exactly mm. and it's also not the sort of show that I think you would really rethink the music to even no. like say do a London cast as well as a yeah. Broadway cast so yeah yeah there's just the original Broadway cast it's on Spotify we'll link to it but yeah Book of Mormon problematic but also like Great. It's really, it's hard. It's okay. a hard one. That's yeah. okay. Things are allowed to be hard. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, that was informative. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth. I think this is going to be an epic episode. Excellent. Because I'm about to talk to a bit of a ripper. Yeah, yeah. Are you ready for chess? Always. Correct. Oh, my God. I love chess. <laughs> I love it so much. In fact, I was thinking, why is it 17? Like, why am I only talking about this at episode 17? Because yeah. it's something that I've always loved. It's not like I'm new to the chess party. It must have been just like, I don't know. I don't it wasn't, know. Well, so, for example, I've never seen the show. Well, I've never seen it either. Yeah. Like, okay. Do you think that's part of it? Well, I don't think so because I've always loved it. Anyway, yeah. I actually think at the moment it's probably not a super popular opinion to really love chess. Mm. Like I think it's sort of almost people are like probably who don't know it are like, oh, chess. But anyway, I'm going to I'm gonna convince you. Yeah. As I've said in, the, um, in our female dream roles mixtape, <laughs> Florence is a dream role of mine. Yeah. Um, I just I'm desperate to be in a production of chess, even yeah. though I've never seen it. It's just I've never seen it done. It's in in its entirety. I've seen like little mini concert versions yeah. of it here and there, um, and I think it's quite telling that I haven't seen it and I love it, which I'm going to talk about anyway. Okay, let's start with the plot. So this is actually quite difficult to tell you about. I'm going to tell you the plot of the original production that was staged. Yeah. Okay. So we're gonna just I'm just going to preface that with. Yeah, it's that's not it's not the plot of every production. No. So here we go. It's the Cold War. 
Um, we opened to like the World Chess Championships that are taking place in Italy. The American competitor, whose name is Freddie, arrives with his second. A second is basically like in the chess world, it's like a chess assistant who helps with strategy and um, that sort of stuff. His second, Florence, comes with him. She's also presumably his lover, although that's never really explicitly mm. stated. Um, Freddie's a douche. Like he's a total douche. He's a douche with the press. He has this like brash, cocky American personality thing going on. Yeah, so then the Russian arrives, his opponent, whose name is Anatoly, with his second. Things get sort of heated between the players, but Florence and the Russian fall in love. I'm oversimplifying everything, obviously. (laughs) When the Russian wins the championship, he defects. He instantly then defects to the UK. So Florence is English and he and Florence go back to the UK and seemingly have this happy ending. Lovely. The next year, so Act 2 is then a year later, the championship is being held in Bangkok and Freddie, the American, wants to um, like rematch Anatoly, do the match again, you know, maybe so he can win this time. Um, Freddie's the American, just, yeah. I'm going to call them the Russian and the American. Yeah. So, yeah, we're in Bangkok. It's the highly publicised um, defection that is like a real problem for the USSR because their big chess champion has defected. Um, Florence with Anatoly's estranged wife Svetlana and some other people are manipulated to sort of convince Anatoly to throw the game and go back to Russia. Florence is promised at the same time that her father who was captured during the 1956 Hungarian revolution um, will be released if Anatoly goes back to Russia. She's really torn but eventually sees that he's actually better off with his family because he's got children Um, and so at the end Florence like Anatoly goes off with his wife. Florence finds out that the promise was an empty one because her father's probably dead and she ends alone. That's it. That's the end of the show. (laughs) It's a bummer. Um, So that's that the basic points in that plot remain the same. Yeah. But I'll tell you about the differences. So some background. This is a mostly book musical, which we'll talk about in a second. It's written by Betty and Bjorn from ABBA. Yes. So music is by Benny Anderson, lyrics by Bjorn Olvaeus and Tim Rice and book by Tim Rice, who you probably know from his many collaborations with Angelo Webber and Elton John and Disney. He's done a bunch of stuff. What a collab. Such a collab. Oh, love. Yeah, love is right. Um, This was originally Tim Rice's idea and concept. So he wanted to write a musical about the Cold War, particularly the Cuban Missile Crisis Mm. in the 70s. But then by the late 70s, Rice had decided that he wanted the musical to focus on the real-life 1972 match of the century, it was called, which is the, the 1972 World Championships of Chess. And it was a contest between the American Bobby Fischer and the Russian Boris Spassky, who were both grandmasters. Yeah. It was – and, like, he wanted to model off that actual real-life game, which is very tense because it's right in the middle of the Cold War, and use the game of chess as, like, a metaphor to represent the Cold War. Yeah. Which is pretty clever. He couldn't work with Andrew Lloyd Webber at the time because Cats – like, Cats was a thing then, so he was, like, right in the middle of Cats. So Tim Rice teamed up with Benny and Bjorn – who just happened to be looking for a project that wasn't ABBA at the time. Oh, yeah. So, like, they had a mutual friend who who just, like, hooked them up and was yeah. like, I think you guys would work well together. And Tim Rice is a huge ABBA fan, <laughs> like a diehard fan. So he was really pumped to work yeah. with them, of course. So all through 1982 and 1983, the three men worked on the music and lyrics. 
Rice would, and because they lived in different countries, Tim Rice would sort of describe the mood of particular songs he wanted. Then like Benny and Bjorn would just go off and write and record the music and send the tapes to Rice who would then like write lyrics to fit the music and then the tape would go back and, <laughs> and back and forth. We're literally talking about tapes because yeah. it's the 80s. So. Like cassette tapes. Cassette tapes, yeah. that's right. Some of the songs on the resulting album, which I'm going to talk about, contained elements of music that Benny and Bjorn had actually previously written for ABBA. Yeah. For example, the chorus of I Know Him So Well was based on the chorus of I Am An, I Am An A, sorry is the word, yeah. um, which is a song from – 1977 and then the chorus of anthem used the same chordal structure from the guitar solo from the song our last summer oh really yeah which is really cool i thought so bjorn also would provide like dummy lyrics on the tapes to sort of emphasize like rhythmic patterns of the music and tim rice actually like found found them all embarrassingly good. So yeah. he like kept a lot of those dummy lyrics. So because ah. originally um, Benny and Bjorn were supposed to write the music and Tim oh, Rice was supposed to write the lyrics. Yeah. But so many of Bjorn's dummy lyrics were really good. So Tim Rice sort of kept them. <laughs> um, the, the most well-known example of that is particularly in One Night in Bangkok. He wrote, um, Bjorn wrote, One Night in Bangkok Made a Hard Man Humble. It's a great cool. lyric. It's a great lyric. That's right. Of course you would keep it. Um, in fact, Agneta, Agneta recorded quite a few of the original songs oh, yeah. for Benny Beyond to send to Tim Rice, which is cool. Um, so partly to raise money to produce, to produce the show in the West End and partly because they just wanted to see how the public would respond to the music, a concept album was recorded, yeah. which at the time was super popular. Like we're talking about this is after Jesus Christ Yeah, so Superstar, what year are we talking about? After Evita. We're talking about 84. Okay, yeah. So it was after Evita, after Superstar. Yeah. They knew concept albums were a thing. So yeah. the public was ready to hear a concept album, which is pretty cool. So um, and partly obviously so – backtrack a couple of seconds because they're living in different countries they decided to record the album in Sweden. no where have I written Stockholm yeah, yeah. Stockholm in 19 in November 1983 and yeah Anderson um Bjorn oh, Benny god who is who right yeah Benny Anderson recorded all the keyboard parts himself of yep. the original concept album, which is cool. So the album was released in 1984 and in the linear notes had like a brief synopsis of the story, yeah. which is cool. Um, One Night in Bangkok became like an instant hit. Yeah. It reached number three on the Billboard chart in the States. And I Know Him wow. So Well was in the number one spot for four weeks in the UK. Wow. Which was, I think it was Elaine Page and, oh, what was her name? But. Barbara someone. Okay. I can't remember. Um, it was a hugely successful album. Like critics loved it. Yeah. Just loved it. So the concept album cast included Murray Head as the American, who yep. you would know as the original Judas from the studio cast recording. Um, Tommy Korberg as the Russian and Elaine Page as Florence. Yeah. I don't know much about Tommy Korberg except no. that he has a beautiful voice. Yeah, yeah. Holy shit. And Elaine so, Page did too, like back in the day. Yeah, it's funny because I, I'm not a fan of Elaine Page yeah. and I'm not a fan of her in this role, but I can listen to her voice and appreciate that she can sing very well. Yeah. Like I can hear that. Yeah. yeah. I saw her in concert maybe five or six years ago. Was she good then? No. Oh, it's a shame. <laughs> like just like. 
She just lost it a bit. Yeah, like it's really hard, isn't it? Like especially because we're talking about her having to sing songs that require like a voice in its prime. Oh, condi- yeah. We're talking about memory. We're talking about like, yeah. you know, massive musical theatre songs. Because she was really like she was the proper lead and she would really belt all those big numbers. Exactly. Like, you can't exactly. be doing that when you're, what is she, 60 something? Oh, yeah, at least. At yeah. least. Okay, so let's talk about some productions. So now after the concept album is really successful, it heads onto the West End stage. It premiered in 1986 at the Prince Edward Theatre. Oh, yep. It was supposed to be directed by Michael Bennett, which I didn't know, right? So Michael Bennett Ooh, is yeah. the creator of Chorus Line. Yeah. I had no I idea. I think I had read that somewhere I had, years ago. I didn't ago. know this yeah. fact. But so he he was there for casting the production. He like commissioned. Get sick, right? Well, yeah. He commissioned all the sets and the costumes and it was quite like he had a proper vision and he had to withdraw um, withdraw because of his AIDS yeah. diagnosis. Yeah, I think I maybe watched a little doco on him oh, or something. That so sad. Yeah. He actually died in 1987. Yeah. So not long after at all. Trevor Nunn took over as director. Yeah. Who directed just a bunch of stuff around that time. Definitely like a collaborator of Andrew Lloyd Webber. So originally Michael Bennett had planned a multimedia show with like banks of TV monitors, lots of tech stuff happening on screen and it was going to be really interactive and multimedia. Yeah. And Trevor Nunn is, is a lot more about realism. So he got rid of a lot of those original concepts and it got scaled back a lot. Um the three main actors from the concept album reprised their roles on stage. Yeah. And it won the Critics Circle Theatre Award for Best Musical and got three Olivier Award nominations for yep. Best Musical, Best Actress um, for Elaine Page and Best Actor for Tommy Korberg, but it didn't win anything. Are we, was, because we're talking like lame is Phantom times. That was right? the year of Phantom. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Phantom won most stuff that year. That West End production, though, ran until 1989. So that's yep. a four-year run. Wow, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not shabby. And critics were critics were fairly mixed about it, but audiences loved it. Yeah. And by mixed, I mean mostly positive. Yeah. Like it, it didn't live up to the concept album, but they still enjoyed it. Yeah. So it was then decided that Chess should go to Broadway. As things ha- as that happens, yeah. Trevor Nunn brought in a new writer to turn it into like a proper book musical. So before this, um, in London, there's only about three minutes of spoken dialogue. It's right. basically sung through. Yeah. On Broadway, the show became one third dialogue. Wow. Yeah, a big difference. So the major plot remained the same, but the but a lot of characters and settings changed. Um, it features my personal favourite cast with Judy Kuhn as Florence, David Carroll as the Russian and Philip Kasanoff as the American. Mm. That's my favourite, the, the trio there. That's, yeah. They're the best. So it opens in April 1988 and it just couldn't find an audience. Yeah. Like, it ran for 17 previews and 68 performances. I had not realised it was such a flop. Such a flop. Oh, my such God. So 68 performances, that's it. Despite that, though, the production was nominated for, like, a bunch of awards. It was um, Judy Kuhn was nominated for Best Actor. David Carroll was nominated. At Tony's. Yeah, neither of them won. Yeah. Some of the major differences in the plot are that this version, the Broadway version, is just about one chess match um, rather than the two. Oh, so okay. there's no, it's not set in two different, like, years. Um, it, it is also set in Bangkok primarily. I was going to say. Not Italy. So, but then is, is Murano at the beginning? Not in the Broadway. Really? Yeah, so there's no – because they don't go to Italy in the Broadway right. production. Murano's not in the show at all. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they don't go to Italy. They go to Bangkok. The second – most of the second act is then in Hungary. Yeah, right. Which doesn't happen in the original production. In the final game, Anatoly 
actually knows about the possibility that Florence's father could have survived. So he recants his defection himself without sort of other people manipulating him to do it. Um, and he ends up losing the game, which is very different from the, from the original. Um, so at the end, Florence still has nothing. Like the outcome is the same, but the way that they get there is yeah, quite different. Okay. Um, yeah, it's just like, yeah. But in, in the end, Florence is sad, just like the West End production. So it's had a US tour, it's had two UK tours, it's had a professional Australian production, it's had a Danish tour, it's had a West End revival and it's had like a bunch of notable concert Concerts, versions. Yeah. I think this show only works as a concert. Yeah. Mainly because the book, which was edited for the Broadway production, doesn't add anything useful. Right. Like if you listen to the concept album, that is it. That yeah. is Like that's the show. Yeah. The book is not useful at all. So it's just all about – this show is really about this fucking majestic, insane, magnificent score. Yeah. It is so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So beautiful. Um, And like it's like banger after banger. Oh, banger after banger. It's like rocky and it's like – but orchestral. Like. The, yeah, so at moments like maybe a bit choral and beautifully orchestral and some yeah. of them are like really resounding like anthem type songs. Others are really romantic ballads. It's got synthesizers. It's got like sort of rapping. Like it's got yeah. fucking everything. What a show. Um, okay, so lots of notable people have been in productions. Yeah. The Actors Fund concert in 2003 starred Josh Groban as the Russian – Adam Pascal as the American and Julia Murney as Florence. Yeah. However, they did a UK concert version with the same cast except for Florence, who was Adina Menzel, and yeah. that's the version you can listen to on Spotify, yeah, which I and think like, is I a have, disgrace. I have the DVD of that, for example, that concert. That's so random. Yeah, like, like why didn't they record the US one with yeah, Julia Murney? Like, I think lots of that's on YouTube. Oh, can, that. Like, why, who would choose Adina Menzel over Julia Murney? Well, yeah. she was a more bankable name, I guess. It was a bad decision. Um, it's so shit, actually. I think the concert. Like, well, I like the orchestrations. I think that Adina Menzel is horribly miscast, but I actually think the rest of it's pretty good. I think Josh Groban is incredibly miscast. Do you? Yeah, I do. Oh, I'd like Josh Groban. No, I don't think he belongs anywhere. <laughs> Kermit. <laughs> yeah, like honestly, there he, are so many. I have many... to tell you, he was so good in Great Comet when I saw Great Comet. He was amazing. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Where's your shaker? Yeah, I need my <laughs> I need to shake it at you. No. Um, <laughs> honestly, like there are so many iterations of this show. I can't go into all of them. Just yeah. go research yourself. There have been so many versions and every single version is a slightly different story. Yeah. So weird. What okay. story do you like best? I like the actual original concept story. Yeah. But I like the Broadway cast. Okay. So I'm a bit of a – I'm a mix. Are the songs very different between – Yeah, and even funny things like Heaven Help My Heart in the West End production is sung about Florence's relationship with um, Anatoly, but in the Broadway production she sings it when she comes back to Hungary and realises that it's not quite the same as what she remembered. Uh. So it's like the intention of that song is completely different. Yeah. So just weird stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like like um, a couple of songs don't exist in the Broadway okay, production. They cut some. I think even someone else's story was was added to the Broadway production. I think. Okay, I have that in my head as well. Yeah, actually. I think that's true. Okay, so some fun facts. You will love this. The first preview of the Broadway production ran for four hours. <laughs> I do love that. It had an intermission that ran for ninety minutes because something happened. Yeah, there was just a major issue with the set. Yeah. By by opening though, the show still ran for three hours and fifteen minutes. Yeah. 
Three hours and 15 minutes. That's too long. I don't I don't have that sort of time in my life. And it's also just, it's too long for a story that doesn't need three hours and 15 minutes for no. it to be told. Correct. Correct. Um, another fun fact. In 2001, in an interview with the San Francisco Chronicle, Tim Rice admitted that, quote, after the comparative failure of chess, his all-time favourite, he became dis- disillusioned with theatre. Yeah. He commented, it may sound arrogant, but chess is as good as anything I've ever done and maybe it costs too much brain power for the average person to follow it. Oh, 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 oh snap, <laughs> Tim Rice. <laughs> Um, another interesting fact, Raul, our delicious, sweet Raul Esparza, has played both the Arbiter and the American. Yeah. Even though maybe some would say he cannot sing the American. Yeah. I, I I mean, I've seen YouTube clips of him doing it and it's just a bit too high it's for a, him. He shame. might have been sick, I don't know, but he yeah. can't hit the notes. So another fun fact, for some reason, someone thought it was appropriate to cast Michael Ball as the Russian in 2018. <laughs> Oh yes, that's that. That's that version that got done in London. The we- it's the West End revival. Yeah, Michael Ball in two thousand and eighteen as the Russian. Bit old, bit long in the tooth. <laughs> Way too old. Incorrect. Um, there have been so many plot changes in all the many productions that there is literally a whole section on the Wikipedia chess page yeah. dedicated to all the differences. It's yeah. like someone's made a table where each production and they have like what's is it different. Tim Rice changing it each time, or is it other people? Well, he brought. No, it's not Tim Rice. So he. They have Oh, because he didn't really. even do the Broadway changes. No. Trevor Nunn got in the guy to write all the Broadway right. changes. So, yeah, it's all, yeah. Um, the woman who played Florence in that West End revival was in the original cast of Anne Juliet. She played Anne Hathaway, Shakespeare's oh, wife. Yeah, and yeah. she's really talented. Well, yeah, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. It's just the Michael Ball thing. Yeah. What What does the UK have for Michael Ball? Like, I don't get they it. They love him. They love him. Love him. Okay, another fun fact. The role of the American is an absolute bitch of a role the range of that role is c3 to c5 (laughs) fuck yeah so it's like josephine and i talk about all the time how we want to do this show but we just don't know anyone who can play that role if you're out there yeah if you could sing a c5 if you could sing a c5 in like a full rock tenor belt it's a proper yeah but like i don't I'm not, we're not interested in falsetto. No. You know, it needs to be a full rock tenor belt. We're also not interested in it sounding pretty. It yeah, needs it to, be to be a rough, rock belt. But it has to be perfectly hitting that C5. <laughs> so, yeah, good luck to you. Okay, so music. This is where it's all at. Yeah. Seriously, the music is so beautiful. Right? Like so beautiful. Everything about it. So it's got some of the most beautiful ensemble songs in the musical theatre mm. universe, I think. Um, as well as this like beautiful blend of 80 synth and ballet, which I know I've already talked about, but I love it so much. It's um, it's very unfortunate that there aren't many versions available on Spotify, yeah. I think. So all you can get on Spotify is the original concept album and the concert, the, the Adina Menzel. Hall. Yeah. yeah. Um, and as well as that, there's lots of like, there's lots of recordings of people singing lots of songs from chess, but no other complete yeah, right. Um, recordings so the Broadway it. cast is not on Spotify. The Broadway cast is not on Spotify. It is on YouTube though and I will link to that because okay. you need to listen to it because yeah. it is so good. Um, I do love the original concept album. In fact, yeah. it's been um, it's been remastered and that's on Spotify and it's, oh, it's a really beautiful cool. version. Oh, my gosh. The only problem is Elaine Page in that right. version. And, I, like, I'm a big fan of Murray Head. I think some people wouldn't like his American. Yeah. Because it's very rocky. Yeah. Because um, he'd just come off Jesus Christ. Like, it's got that feel yeah. to it. Um, but I love it. Honestly, Elaine Page is lovely. She's just not a Florence okay. in my head. Yeah. 
Florence should be Judy Kuhn. I just find her vocal choices to be a bit safe sometimes or something. Like I agree. Just, she's just got quite a plain voice. It's too plain. Like if you yeah. listen to Judy Kuhn, who's just got this tone that, oh, oh my yeah. God. And will, she's a great actress as well, She Judy is Kuhn. great. Yeah. I will fight anyone who disagrees with me on that. Also, Tommy Kloberg singing Anthem is all time. Okay. Like I know Anthem is such a cliche, yeah. but fuck that yeah. version. It's a great song though. Like that. Like it's songs become song. cliches for a reason. Honestly, you listen to this cast recording and you wonder, honestly, if Benny and Bjorn are musical geniuses. I don't wonder. I think the answer is they are. Yeah. Go to YouTube, listen to the Broadway cast recording. It's wonderful. Particularly the quartet, actually, I really like Oh, that. that's beautiful, yeah. Beautiful. Lots okay. of the vocal arrangements. Oh, beautiful, yeah. So pretty. Okay, so Gateway Songs. It's got to be Anthem, Yeah. number one. And I've put Tommy Kloberg, so the original concept album yep. on there because it's beautiful. Okay, I've also put Pity the Child. Part two. Yes, part two. two. Because holy shit, is it a sing? Unfortunately, though, neither Murray Head nor I believe Adam Pascal can sing it to the level that it needs to be sung. Yeah, I disagree, but yeah. I, I, I'm, I've i put the Adam Pascal version on the okay. – I've put two versions actually on the Gateway <laughs> yeah. recording. I've put a version that Colm Wilkinson recorded Yeah, because it's Colm and you can shut up. I'm not going to listen to your shit. And she the, means me. Yeah, and <laughs> you. And the Adam Pascal version. Yeah. So I've put them both on there. Um. Tell us which one you prefer, audience. <laughs> Actually, tell us. That'd be yeah. great. Uh, yeah. So the other one, though, has got to be Nobody's Side, yeah. which we've talked about in a mixtape. This song is the best thing ever. The version that I've put on the gateway on this playlist is the extremely random Danish concert from yes. 2012. Maria Lucia. Maria Lucia. She is so good. So fucking good. Listen to this version and love it. Yeah. It's also so I, I like so I think that version of Nobody's Side was the version that my husband Andrew discovered. Like that's how we all know and about it. He's obsessed it. with he's it. He's obsessed with Chess is one of his favorite musicals as well. Because he's correct. And um but what he he's like um you know, elusive unicorn was finding a version of the new orchestrations, yeah, which were done for the Royal Albert Hall version, that didn't which didn't include Adina Menzel, yes, yeah. which is not Adina. And like, look, like you know, I I've talked about Wild Party on here before. Like, I, I think Adina Menzel's talented, but Florence is not no. her role. She was very like very it is just cast. it it is not the right role for her mm. voice and like yeah and it's just like so he wanted to find a version that was yeah these new orchestrations but without her singing it and we finally found this random so Danish random. cast recording so what do you think about because there was a there was a Tokyo production at the beginning of this year what, that R- Sweet Ramin was in yeah with Ramin as the Russian and Samantha Barks as Florence that's right yeah which I think is also not correct she's got the like the balls for Florence I don't know I don't know if we've seen Samantha Barks do what she can do she surprised me in Pretty Woman to be I honest I just think like you it's a bad I show, but she surprised me for <laughs> for Les Mis. For Les Mis. Yeah, I I don't know. I, know I don't. It's not necessarily. I don't think her we fault. should say that. Yeah, like that. That's who she is entirely. I, I I would have to see her, and she's got a great voice. She's got a great voice. Yeah. But like I said in the Les Mis ep- episode, it's not that I think she's bad. It's that I think she's a bit um, samey. Samey. I was about to say like uh, to me, it's a bit boring. For, like in my opinion, in your opinion, yes. would probably be that she's a bit Elaine Page. Like it's like exactly. a bit safe, a bit just a bit yeah. vanilla. Like I cannot overstate just how beautiful the tone of Judy Kuhn's voice yeah. is and how you can – it's recognisable and it's beautiful and you know that there's not going to be any dodgy moments there. Yeah. Like it's so flawless. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. 
I still feel like chess is one of those shows that they could really bring back for like an amazing concert run oh, somewhere. That... I wish they would and I wish they would cast me in it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and find a good American. That's right. Yeah. Um, it's sort of one of those shows that I'm surprised I never really got into when I was younger because like, you know, my family is like well into chess. Yeah. Chess the sport, right? Yeah. My dad was like a former state champion chess player and so stuff. Cute. Like, Why did he never love chess? Because <laughs> like, he doesn't like musicals. He's a, he's, he likes musicals more than my mum does. That's not saying he. No, it's it's not <laughs> but I, yeah um, like like why hasn't he listened to chess it's so true yeah. so this was one of the the broadway cast recording is one of those cds that was burnt for me by a musical director back in the day yeah. that we both knew when i was a kid so it was like i knew this very early yeah. on it was like one of the first cast recordings i ever yeah, listened to i i hadn't i didn't really know it until i what I, I bought the dvd of the royal albert hall production yeah. yeah and i remember because it came it was like you got like the dvd and like the two disc cd set mm. and like some sheet music like oh, it was yeah. this whole like limited edition set that i got i think i mostly got it from just like loving adam pascal oh and, yeah that's true yeah you know like it was like post rent and yeah. stuff like that so i think that was the reason I, I remember i ordered it from overseas at the time well so like you love musicals so you would have just got it's this. true but it's just like chess was not one of those shows that was i didn't know the musical before i got that see that's why at the beginning of what i was talking about i said like i don't think this is a popular choice and no. I, and i think it i think it needs a bit more attention yeah like I think it's a musical that you need to go and, and sit down what I will say about the Broadway cast recording if you do go to YouTube is that Anthem is a bit underwhelming okay so for many many years because I only knew the Broadway cast recording I didn't like the song yeah. Anthem, and it's a beautiful song but if you listen to Tommy Kloberg sing it in the on the concept, concept album holy fuck yeah, right. It, like it, it makes you feel patriotic for something yeah. that I've never felt before. Like I don't feel that emotion, but you feel like, oh shit, yeah, yeah. I should stand up. Like it's that sort of song. Yeah. Yeah, incredibly stirring music in general. Stirring is correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, chess. That's chess. So good. Love it. Yeah, what a ripper. Yeah, some big shows this week. Big shows. Love it. Yeah. I love it when they're big. I would love to see chess. <laughs> yes, on stage. you do. <laughs> huh? I love it when they're big. Oh, yeah, that came out wrong. Did it? No, let's be honest, it didn't. Um, <laughs> yes, let's go. Let's do chess. Can we do chess? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Um, cool. Thanks, Ruth. Uh, thanks, Josephine, and I'll see you next week. Will you? Yeah. Listen to the mixtape, everyone. Yeah, guys, Thursday's mixtape day. Please like, rate, review. We'd love some nice reviews, actually. Yeah. A, a bit while. of an egomaniac. We have Can like we little spurts nice? of them. Yeah. And then. Yeah, they go, stop. go write something nice. Yeah, that'd yeah. be awesome. Yeah, because um, Ruth's hair looks really good today. You could talk about that. Yeah, talk about um, how lovely our voices are. Oh, yes. Not too much, um, what's the thing that everyone... Vocal fry. Vocal fry, not too uh, much vocal... Uh, yeah, uh, not too much for everyone. Do we what? have any vocal fry, do you reckon? Probably a bit. You just said probably a bit. Probably. <laughs> uh, anyway, we're getting distracted, so... Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.